So we are, morning, we are um, starting a series today, and um, I don't know how long it's going to last, but we're, we're naming it What is a Christian? Um, there are kind of, I, and if you've been around here long enough, you've probably noticed that I'm kind of hesitant sometimes to use the term Christian or Christianity. And it's not because the word is bad, thank you, Minda, but it's because what it's become to be, uh, what it has come to represent or to mean in our culture is not something that is consistent necessarily at all with the scripture. Um, some people say Christian and you think hypocrite, you think bigot. You think a political persuasion. You think uh, small-minded. You think people are anti-science. You think, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and I'm not trying to down us as Christians. Don't feel like I'm, you know, kicking, kicking us. But, but it, 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 to get back to the biblical idea of what it is to be a Christian. Now, here's the thing. Uh, if Christian, there is a, a, uh, a doorway into what, what we call Christianity. Another way you could say that is Christianity is following Jesus. Another way you could say it is the kingdom of God. There is a doorway into that kingdom. And uh, that kingdom, what we, again, call Christianity, there's so much that we could talk about, you know. I mean, we could endlessly talk about what the kingdom of God is all about. But what we're going to be talking about in this series is what is that doorway? What is that threshold that one crosses from being not in the kingdom of God to being in the kingdom of God. What is it? Uh, we want to make sure that we are all very clear on what it is to become biblically a Christian. Why? If we aren't Christian, according to the Bible, I want to make sure that we're all born again, believers, followers of Jesus. But even again, some of us have been Christians for a long, myself included. I can find myself straying so ever so slightly from the rudiments of what it was that got me into the kingdom of heaven. And I want to say that every single step after you cross through that threshold, it all is patterned after what it was that got you through that threshold. It's a declaration of who Jesus is and, and responding to him and following him and relating to him accordingly. Everything in the kingdom of heaven operates around that. And so we're going to be looking over the next number of weeks around what it, what it is to be a Christian. And, uh, and I believe that at the tail end of this, our, our hope, our prayer is that we as a church will be more rightly connected with heaven, following him very clear, and, and, and a part of what he is doing in restoring the, the true church in the earth today. That's what I want to be a part of, not something that's man-made. So today we're going to start with the pursuit of the Christian, which is knowing Jesus. That is the pursuit. When uh, I had the um, privilege of, of uh, becoming born again, as we say, at the age of about 17 or 18 in, in, as a senior in high school, many of you know the story, I, there was the Catholic priest, and um, Father Richard Lopez, and he, he talked th with a class uh, that I was a part of in high school about the difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. 
and it was something that he said. As far as I know, I don't know if anybody else had the same experience, but the penny dropped for Paul Nichols. I, I knew I did not actually know Jesus. And he begins to explain that if you don't really feel like you know him, you just know stuff about him, then the whole purpose of him coming to the earth and dying on the cross is not actually working in your life. And that, that just amazed me that that is what this whole thing is about. And then he said, seek and you will find. This priest said that. And, and he said, if you, Jesus promises if you seek, he promises you'll find. And so I went home that night and uh, shared the story many times. Um, and I acknowledged to the Lord, I don't really know you. And I want to know you. And you said, seek and you will find. And so I'm saying, Lord, I'm, I'm seeking. Help me to find you. It was literally in that moment that the Holy Spirit just began to drop into my spirit the essence of the gospel, to repent of my life, <clears throat> to, to turn from my life, and to declare Jesus as my Lord, and to give my life to him. <laughs> I mean, simple, simple recipe. That's the threshold, my friends. But the pursuit I was after was not being a good Christian. The pursuit I was after was knowing Jesus. And that, my friends, I have now become convinced some, God only knows how much later, what, what's 44 minus 17? A whole bunch of years, 27 years. Years later, I am more convinced than that day that the, the pursuit, the one thing, is knowing Jesus. There are many pursuits that we can make as Christians to, be able to, to kind of fuel what it is that is behind our efforts to be a Christian and to be involved in Christianity. There could be, uh, I, I want to be a better person. So I'm involved in church because I feel like surely this Christianity, Bible, church stuff is going to help me be a better person. There could be the pursuit of uh, staying out of hell. You know, I don't know. I just kind of heard somewhere that, you know, there's heaven and hell and people who don't believe in Jesus go to hell. So I just want to be, make sure I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to be in church. There could be the pursuit of developing your spirituality. That, you know, I've got my work life, I've got my family life, and I need to have a spiritual part component to my life. And so I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be a part of, you know, have some spiritual, my spirituality develop. You could be uh, pursuing uh, your Christian life because you want God as a life raft. You know, like, help. Like, I don't know what to, I, help. You know, you could be uh, pursuing, uh, wanting to give back. You know, serving people in the community. And so we want to be a part of a do-good organization that's doing something good in the community. And we want to give back. All of these things are good, right? I mean, I want to stay out of hell. I want God as my life raft even. But I want to say this morning that there is actually biblically one undergirding true pursuit that undergirds everything else that we're called to do as a follower of Jesus, and it is the pursuit of knowing him. And it is an endless, lifelong pursuit, the depths of which we will never satisfy. There is always more brilliance and amazement and power and glory and purpose to be unveiled in the person of Jesus, who is the exact representation of the God the Father. And so, accordingly, Psalms 24, the psalmist says this in verse 4. Remember I said there's one thing, right? The psalmist, David, says, one thing, one thing I have desired, and that is what I will seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. Later on in the life of Jesus, you read, in, and you can turn there if you want, Luke chapter 10. Just want to touch on it real quick. There's this amazing story of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And um, Jesus is going about in his ministry, and Martha invites them into their home. I'll read the story now, verses 38 through 42. But it depicts this same thing that undergirds what it is to be the, the true pursuit of Christianity. It says in verse 38 of Luke 10, Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, that's Jesus, into her house. So Jesus is doing his ministry, and Martha is saying, Hey, uh, why don't you and your disciples come in here and hang out, and, and we'll feed you, and we'll kind of take care of you. Come into my house. And it says, And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Did you catch that? What was Mary doing here? Sitting at his feet, listening to what he had to say. In other words, she was doing what David said was his one thing. She was wanting to behold the beauty of the Lord. She was wanting to become, she was wanting to have who he is unveiled to her. She was wanting to find out who this Jesus was. She was wanting to hear his word from the depths of his heart. And Martha says, it says Martha was distracted with much serving. Now I want you to catch that. I believe that there are many in the church who equally could be said are distracted with much serving. We're doing a whole lot for Jesus. But here's Mary who's sitting at his feet knowing Jesus. And what does Martha say? It says that she approached him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And what's Jesus' response on this? Verse 41, Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Remember one thing? You're troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part. You answer the question for me. What is the one thing Jesus is talking about? Here's Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, the perfect representation of God saying that there's one thing, one thing that is most necessary. It's sitting at his feet and hearing him. I, I, I want to pray this morning that that becomes restored to be our one thing. Not a good sermon this morning. Well done, Paul. Thanks for that great input. That we would hear from the shepherd this morning the voice of the one calling us back to what it is to be a Christian. What the fundamental pursuit is. What this whole thing ends up being about. The net, 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 bottom line, most important thing is God has called us to know him in the person of Jesus. And so I just want to say a couple of thoughts this morning. Firstly being, excuse me, Jesus' death invited us into intimacy with him. That's huge, my friends. I mean, we're, you know, we talk about God becoming a man and dying for me. I mean, that's amazing. That's like love. But the, it begs the question, why, why did God become a man and die for me? For what purpose? And the purpose ends up being that he died for me to invite me into intimacy. If you look at Matthew, you can turn there if you want, Matthew 27, if you have a Bible or a Bible app. Matthew 27, at the death of Jesus, we see something amazing 
that happens. It's of such significance that Matthew doesn't really elaborate on, but let me explain. In the Old Testament temple, in the holy city of Jerusalem, right by where Jesus was dying, there was the temple, and in the temple there was the outer court, there was the inner court, and then beyond that there was a veil that separated the inner court from the holiest of holies. And in the inner, the very back of the temple, in the innermost sanctum, uh, it was believed that God was dwelling there. The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat were there, God's very presence. Nobody could cross that veil. Nobody except one person, the high priest. And it said even he would have to have a rope tied around his ankle when he went in there once per year to offer a sacrifice of an unblemished lamb to atone for the sins of the nation. And that rope was around his ankle because if he died, because he was unworthy, nobody would be able to go in and pull his body out because they would be killed also in the manifest presence of the Lord. So they would have to pull him out. This, this is the idea of the holiest of holies, that God's presence is unattainable. And it says when Jesus was dying on the cross in Matthew chapter 27 verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. This is the moment that he dies. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Uh, Matthew doesn't even go on to explain what that means, but are you, are you following here that Jesus' death brought about the tearing of this veil that had forever separated man from God, signifying that this death, this blood that was spilled on our behalf that covers my sins, enables me for, into one thing, and it is to come into the presence of God and to encounter him. And I want to uh, uh, give praise this morning that on my that bed in, at the age of 17, praying that f to receive Jesus and to become born again that night, I, I, I sensed his presence. I, 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 I experienced him. A penny dropped inside of me. I didn't see him with my eyes, but somehow something happened that I knew him. And, and from that moment forward, I know him. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm saying the perfect one lives in me. I, I know him. You know what I mean? This is why Jesus died. And let us get back to the rudiments and the most important thing of what it is to be a Christian. It is everything that we do as a Christian comes from the place of intimacy. Everything that we do outside of intimacy is just man-made. It's just religion. The call is to be with me. He says in Mark chapter 3 that he called the 12 to himself and sent them out and, and, and called them to himself that they might be with him and that he might send them to go preach the gospel. Before he sends you to go do what he's called you to do, you first are with him. That's that. You want to know what your priority is for this week? That is it. One thing that I would be in the temple of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. You may say, okay, that sounds great. I don't know how to do that. We'll get there. Let's go on, though. I just want to read this scripture, Hebrews 10. Uh, we've read it recently, but why don't we read it again? Scripture's good. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Just to put into context what I'm saying here and what I just said. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest. Remember what we said about the holiest of holies? Here's the author of Hebrews saying ex explicitly what we just said. Having boldness. 
Why do we need boldness? Because you and I have sinned. And how many of you have ever felt like you can't come into the presence of God because you're not worthy? That's the whole point. None of us are worthy. You never will be worthy. You might as well give up the whole quest to finally be worthy enough for God. Jesus has made us worthy. He's not looking for our, our per performance perfection. He's looking for our heart. Because faith is of the heart. Having boldness to enter in the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, hear those words, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The true pursuit of the Christian, maybe you've heard this this morning before, is to know Jesus. <laughs> and so let me, let me just remind us of this, that when Jesus was, he, finalized, he finished all of his ministry, and he's, he's praying what we call in John 17, you can turn there if you want, the high priestly prayer. He hasn't gone to the cross, but he's kind of praying his final prayer uh, to God the Father. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you're praying what you know is like the last prayer, this is like your last prayer moment, and, and you're about to complete your mission by dying for, ever, for the sins of the world, don't you think that that prayer would probably be of substance? It would probably represent something deep in your heart. And he, and he begins the prayer, uh, but I'll just go to the second verse. He says to God, as you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life as to as many as you have given him. And so if you look at most of Christianity as we've known it, eternal life is like all about going to heaven and not to hell. And while that's wonderful and it's biblically true, what is Jesus' definition of eternal life? Well, look in the next verse. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That, my friends, represents, I'm not kidding, the whole point. This was the, the love that compelled Jesus to leave the perfection of heaven and to enter into the sinfulness and evil of man's world was because God was determined above all other things that his children, the apex of his creation, mankind, that they could know him. Not that they could have Christianity, whatever that means. That they could know him again. Even with the sin nature that all of us share because of the sin of Adam. That we, because of the blood of Jesus, not our own righteousness, can enter into the presence of God and know him. You want to be a good Christian? You know how that happens? Be in his presence and let your life flow from what happens in your heart in his presence. Sadly, most Christians try to perform and do and be good enough so that maybe God can bless me. Maybe I can have some kind of a relationship with him. I don't know if I even want that. I'm kind of scared of it. But I'll just go try to do my best. It is an affront to the very reason that Jesus, God's son, had to die on a cross. He does not need our performance. He invites us into presence. And so this guy, Paul, you've not the guy you're listening to now, but the Apostle Paul. Many people would hail him as like the ultimate disciple. 
And to be honest with you, I would probably agree. Like, Paul's my favorite. He's not even, he didn't even know Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. He was too young. He was like another generation of, of disciples. And yet he encountered Jesus uh, after Jesus had already risen and ascended into heaven, he encountered, and his encounter with Jesus was such that he literally turned on a dime, went from a persecutor of the church to a wild advocate of the gospel. <laughs> and, and what happened? He encountered the Lord. Like, he's my hero as far as man goes. Jesus is really my hero, but Paul. And think of what he accomplished. I mean, just to name a few things. He, this guy writes two-thirds of the New Testament. This guy is a prolific church planter all throughout the Roman world. This guy is almost like one step away from being single-handedly responsible for pioneering the gospel outside of a Jewish context and into the Gentile world. This guy leads an apostolic team that is growing and growing as his ministry expands throughout the years. He is carrying weight. He is, he is like a disciple of note. And can I say this morning that all of those things that he accomplished— for Jesus, I don't think Paul would say, I accomplished them. Paul would say, Jesus accomplished those things through me. Those things were not his pursuit, not even one of them. They were the fruit of his pursuit. What was his pursuit? Knowing Jesus. And in the pursuit of knowing Jesus, he found himself, according to his particular call, preaching the gospel, planting churches, writing letters to these churches, doing all these things that we celebrate that was never his goal, never his obsession. Jesus Christ is the central theme and focus of the kingdom of heaven. And as we connect with the kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus will become the central theme and focus of our heart and our life. Not because we're so good and we've really got this, we've made him our central theme and focus. Because if you have tasted and seen something of Jesus, that is automatically who he becomes. I would dare say if he's not, then we maybe haven't really encountered Jesus yet. I am convinced that if you really encounter Jesus, ain't nothing going to compete in your heart. And so to reinforce, how do I say this about Paul? If, you'll, if you can look in Philippians chapter 3. How do I know that knowing Jesus was his primary pursuit? Because he said it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, after having kind of listed all of his resume as a, as a respectable Jew in the Jewish community, of having the favor and the accolades of all of his contemporaries being known throughout the Jewish world, he had a silver platter right there for him to be somebody in the Jewish world, and this guy left all of that. And to be honest with you, I can identify with some of this. In my course of knowing Jesus, Jesus has led me to leave all of what my natural heritage, my natural upbringing could have afforded me. And it might have been a little bit of an easier life. <laughs> and so I understand something of what Paul is saying here. He says, but whatever things were gains to me, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That was, what, that was his obsession. Knowing him. If we want to be the church and, and a Christian... What Jesus, what, what is a great Christian? There is no such thing as a great Christian, can I say, by the way? There, it does not exist. Jesus is great. 
and Jesus manifests himself through people who have been with him. That's it. For whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage. Your translation may say dung or rubbish. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is uh, through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen to this. I want to know Christ. How do I find myself being martyred for my faith, being stoned on Jesus' behalf? <laughs> stoned with a stone, by the way. You know, I know what's legal in Michigan. But anyways, we're talking about being stoned by actual stones several times and ultimately martyred. What led him to that place of being so radically dedicated to Jesus? It wasn't how great of a Christian Paul was. It was that he saw how great Jesus was and Jesus became his obsession because he understood that the gospel had invited him to cross through that veil and to be with Jesus. You see, if, if anything that we do as a Christian, our orientation as a Christian, if it's anything other than this one primary pursuit, what ends up happening is what I call religious Christianity. It's man-made it's what we can do in our strength for God, which is total pride, that, that God needs us to do something for him. <laughs> Anyways, but if we do what I'm talking about, make it about actually knowing him, then Jesus is the one who builds his church his way. And so let me just toss some ideas here about the difference, the juxtaposition of Religious Christianity to actually following Jesus. I hope this makes it really clear. Religious Christianity is about self-improvement. Following Jesus or knowing Jesus is about dying to self so Jesus can live through us. I've heard it said this way. Jesus doesn't want to make you better. He wants to kill you so that he can live through you because resurrection has to follow death. Religious Christianity is about effort Following Jesus is about obedience. Religious Christianity is about working towards holiness. Whereas following Jesus or knowing Jesus is about working from holiness. Religious Christianity is about being involved with things that have to do with Jesus. Church, Bible study, whatever. Following Jesus is being involved with Jesus. Religious Christianity is looking at self. You may not realize it, but that's what you're doing. You're navel-gazing. You're looking at self. Following Jesus is looking at Jesus. Religious Christianity is about modifying your behavior. Following Jesus is about being led by the Spirit, which is a relationship, a voice inside of you. Religious Christianity is about knowing the book of the Lord. How many Christians do you know pride themselves on how many scriptures they can quote? Following Jesus is about knowing the Lord of the book. Religious Christianity is about what I can do. Following Jesus is about what he can do if I obey. Religious Christianity is actually pride masquerading as humility. Following Jesus is humility manifesting in power. Re religious Christianity is knowing about Jesus. Following Jesus is about knowing Jesus. 
Religious Christianity is about rejecting the parts that we're uncomfortable with. Following Jesus is about rejecting the parts that he's uncomfortable with. Religious Christianity is distant. Following Jesus is intimate. Religious Christianity is the pursuit of being a better Christian. Following Jesus is the pursuit of Jesus. How about we respond right now and just turn our hearts to the Lord? And that's the very thing that I want to say is, is if I can remind us, the psalmist says at the very beginning of what I, how we, where we started, go back to where we started, Psalms 27, 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord that I, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to say to you this morning, because I know that that raises questions, it sounds so wonderful. I'd love to be in the, the Lord's temple, you could say. I'd love to be in his presence and behold him. But I honestly, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know how to do that. And I want to say that you do have the power. You do have the ability. You, it, it, it is about your heart. It is about your heart. It's not about your perfection. It's not about getting all the doctrine right. It's not about, it is about your heart and more specifically about your heart turning. Turning. It's so simple. Maybe if, if it would help, I could just say it like this. If I'm on a date with Minda, my wife, and, I'm, and we're sitting across a table, and I'm distracted, and I'm thinking, and I'm trying to do something, and I'm trying to make something, I'm, I'm working at trying to make this thing, and all she wants is just to be with me. If I would just stop whatever I'm trying to do and just lock eyes and hear her heart and be with her and make my focus and my priority in that moment to, to be with her, then we have connection. And if you can do what I just described with a human, you can do it with Jesus. Listen to this about beholding because I want to put this to practice right now, what I'm about to read. 2 Corinthians 3.15. Paul says it exactly what we need to hear. But even to this day, when Moses is read, he's speaking of the reading of the Old Testament, a veil, remember the veil in the, in the, in the temple separating the holiest of holies? A veil lies on their heart. I want you to picture that idea of a veil upon the heart. You know, if you've seen a bride at a wedding, she oftentimes is wearing a veil, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like you can see something of her face, but there's a moment in the wedding when the veil is lifted and you behold her in technicolor, can I say. And that's kind of the idea here is that when we read the scripture, a veil is over our heart. We're seeing an image, an idea of who God is, but a veil lies on our heart that we're not seeing him in technicolor, but it says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. My friends, the moment my, that my heart turned to the Lord when I was 17, my heart turned to him. I, my, he had my attention. Lord, I realize that I don't really know you. I know about you. I've been in church all my life, but I actually don't know you. I'm telling you, there was a moment of intimacy. It was as though the father pierced 
with his eyes into my soul and he said, finally, you see what I have been seeing all along. I want you to know me and I want you to want to know me. And when the heart turns to the Lord, acknowledges your need for him, that is where the veil is lifted. And it says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, as we turn to the Lord, the veil that covers our heart, our spirit man is able to behold Jesus with unveiled face. What happens? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. He causes you to see him. You turn your heart 